Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Ann Thompson and uh, with me out of the New York office in a better pod than he was in five minutes ago is Ryan Latanzio. We are uh, still in the thick of the Oscar race and uh, basically what's going on, obviously the actors have been (laughs) unleashed. They have been set free. They are running wild. We are setting tons of interviews. Um, but the uh, already underway were various events that uh, this is the we're in the thick of it now. We're in the real Oscar season. And uh, I uh, went to a couple things. How about you, Ryan? What did you get to you know check out in New York? What's going on there? Yeah, the, the vibe is very much that things are crazed right now. Um, yes. You know, it's like we talked about this last week, but within mere moments of the agreement <laughs> being reached amongst the GAFTRA between the studios were the pitch emails that came out from the reps. Um, and then just like the Q and A's are rolling out. It's all happening in very quick motion. Um, a couple of things that I've been up to last night, I went to a really fancy dinner for past lives um, and sat across from Celine Song, who I, the director who I'd never met before, actually. And she she's very really, cool. She was really chill. Like she just was a total pleasure to sit with. And then another thing this week, I moderated actually a, this is a movie that's, it's not going to happen, of course, but I moderated a SAG Q&A, SAG After Foundation Q&A with Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard for the film Memory, which uh, is backed by a really tiny distributor, Ketchup Entertainment, and they're doing a small run for it in December. Marcus and I talked about that. I admire that movie quite a bit. It's got a lot to recommend it, but many of the uh, reasons why Michelle Franco's uh, direction and taste and discretion um, are to be lauded are reasons why it's not at all commercial. <laughs> so Correct. it's Correct. sort of a problem. Uh, yeah, people were a little puzzled by it in the audience, but of course they're to talk to the actors. And I got some interesting stuff from her that I hadn't heard anywhere else. Like now, you know, a co-star of the movie is Jessica Harper, the iconic actress from Suspiria. And Jessica Justine says like, joking sort of jokingly but i think she's serious that she can't even like look at her anymore because of just like the the awfulness that they had to go through in those scenes and remember she said something similar about her longtime juilliard pal um oscar isaac that she's their friendship was sort of tarnished by uh what they went through marriage yeah yeah that was a great series that was an incredible bit of acting she's amazing i think jessica chastain is, is an extraordinary actress and she's incredibly good at intimate relationship scenes she and michael shannon are extraordinary in that in that uh, series uh, about sammy wynette and george that's Jones. right You're right we, yeah we, and we love to see her outside of um 
the makeup and prosthetics and sort of the wig work that she won her Oscar for with Tammy Faye. Absolutely. Well, that was a while back. Yeah. yeah. So what did I do? I went to, last night was extraordinary. I went to um, a tribute to Robbie Robertson. It was a concert, a memorial concert at the Village Studio in on, off of Sawtell in L.A. And it was filled with music people. It was a real jam. I hung out with people like Art Linson and Taylor Hackford. And, and these are people that were friends with him, you know. And uh, Martin Scorsese gave a tribute. He wrote a beautiful, beautiful thing and explained a lot about how much Robbie contributed to the music on all of his films. He wasn't writing scores. He was giving him tips about what kind of songs to use. And he lit listened to him and he used a lot of the songs that Robbie uh, recommended and they became friends, very close friends as a result. And he, he really checked in with him. He stayed in L.A., uh, Robbie did, and and Martin lived in in, in New York. Uh, I was very moved by it and learned a lot about how the music on, on Martin, because Martin Scorsese doesn't do conventional scores. It's a lot more about found music, but the score for Killers of the Flower Moon is more of a, an unconventional score, very organic and very beautiful. I, I think it's a great piece of, of music. It is, yeah. And it's got this propulsive quality that really pushes the movie forward. Uh, it's just too bad he died just a few months ago, um, I think right after the movie premiered at Cannes or sometime around then. And uh, He wasn't able to go to Cannes, Martin, right. Marty said to me, yeah. And, I'm dropping uh, the Marty line, you know, forgive me. <laughs> Marty told me. <laughs> Marty told me that he did, that he, no, he was very sad, very sad about losing his friend. But all right, so I'm sitting in the, you know, they line up all these uh, like folding chairs, Leo's down the row, we have Lily Gladstone, who's stunning in person, by the way, uh, down the row. Sitting right behind me is Joni Mitchell. I, I could care less about Leo, all right? I turn around and I introduce myself to Joni Mitchell and and tell her that I honor her. I, I sounded like an asshole, but it was what I felt. Well, she I mean, she, she, what, what else is there to say to her? Right. You know, I mean, yes, I, would be, I grew I would up be, with her. I would be completely paralyzed if I met her. You know, she's one that um, I follow her. It's not she's not running it, of course, and following her Instagram account that her people are running or whatever. Uh, and anytime there's like a new picture of her posted, I'm like, oh, God, it's happened. She's died. You know, I live in this no. is the day I live in fear of, of like I really I am afraid if, for that. If day. I can reassure you slightly, uh, one thing that I came away from just being close to her like that was that she's strong. She's not frail. I don't know how good her balance is. Uh, I, I can't speak for that because she always has a cane, but she looked hearty to me. Well, I, she's really been. Um, she has a strong handshake. Let me put it that way. I, well, I think she's got her friend Brandy Carlisle to, to to thank a little bit for sort of vivifying her in this later chapter of her life, you know, because they've done a few performances together. I unsuccessfully tried to get tickets to one that was in Washington State in June. I even joined the Bramley, which was like I paid. Oh, you should have been Carlisle's sitting at <laughs> club so I could try and get early access and it oh, all fell apart. But yes, no, I, I mean, I. Joined. As well. You're a true fan. You're a true fan. But for me, it was like high school. And that's what Robbie Robertson was, too. I mean, one of my first concerts was the band, um, you know, but Joni was on the West Coast. I never got to see her. So I don't know. It was it was a big deal. What else did I do? I also went on Monday night to an Oppenheimer event where they showed the making of the Oppenheimer movie. 
And it was uh, really eye-opening, actually. It was very, very impressive. You could see the whole audience was sort of wrapped because they recognized the degree of difficulty that that Oppenheimer, that Nolan imposed on his crew. How tough it was on them to deliver what he needed in practical, in-camera effects, makeup, everything for IMAX. And this was a screening of a featurette, right? That's eventually going to be on the a blue, the Blu-ray, a documentary. And of course, a quote that's gone viral this week is him uh, urging people to buy this forthcoming Blu-ray so they can own it to wrest it from the clutches of quote unquote evil streaming companies, which I thought- November 21st is the operative date, but it is worth, um, I would say it's an extra worth having if you're interested in how movies are made. Um, and I'm, I, I basically, I, wouldn't you agree, Ryan, at this point, Oppenheimer is the movie to beat. It's going to oh, be Oh, of course. Killian Murphy's the actor to beat. Christopher Nolan's the director to beat. I mean, at this point, I think it's really- uh, it's no it's no question. I mean, some of these people are actually rather big stars in their own right in the world of crafts. So I got a kick out of meeting this guy whose name is Andrew Jackson. He was the VFX guy on Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. He's working on Furiosa now. He's the guy who's figured out who figured out with the other special effects guy, Scott Fisher, how to put the yeah, how to they created all of those visual things that that uh, he sees in his head, all the atoms ricocheting around. They created those things in in real life and filmed them. That's that's what they did. And they blew up. They blew up the atomic bomb. You know, in real, they just they didn't blow up an atomic bomb, but they created uh, bombs that blew up that looked like one, you know. Well, this could be a good seg potentially into another event that we both attended this week on different coasts, which was when I was watching the the Ridley Scott film Napoleon, I was thinking about Oppenheimer and how Nolan really found the poetry and the chaos of things in in a way that I'm not sure that Ridley Scott did. But uh, tell me, Anne, first, what were your thoughts about the movie Napoleon? I seem to be coming out on the very, very positive end of the Napoleon reaction, which by the way is wide. There is a very wide range of, of reactions. I think the last time I look at it was looked at it was like 78 on, on Metacritic, which is respectable but not great. Um so I uh I loved it. I loved it. And I I actually think Joaquin Phoenix is fantastic and 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 I was riveted by him. He's not anything uh cliched or anything you would expect. And he, he felt like a real person, you know, and and so did Vanessa Kirby as Josephine, a sort of complicated character, and their relationship was complicated. So that um, relationship through line runs through the movie, and then you get these extraordinary battles, right? Nobody does that better than Ridley Scott. Austerlitz, with with the horses and the blood and the soldiers falling through the frozen ice into the water. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. I felt like, um, and I suppose... This is how all of Europe felt at the time as well. When the by the time we got to Waterloo, I was sort of I was disconnected. There was something about that Waterloo battle that was so fractious that I don't I don't think that one was as well executed as like you said, Austerlitz. There fun- was one camera move though, Ryan. If, if, what is it called when 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 they close ranks around like that? They create that square, the soldiers, which was a, a Wellington me. thing, phalanx maybe or something. You know. Sure, it's a, yeah. It's a thing. And anyway, so they had a he had a swirling camera going around it with the horses that really blew my mind. I got a kick out of that stuff. 
it isn't all the same old, same old. He's keeping up with with new technology, Ridley. There's a lot of VFX in there. It's funny about that movie that I, I feel, and this is to its credit, I think, and to its benefit, that I felt like Joaquin was still a little bit in Bo's Afraid Land. Like there's something really sort of pathetic and debasing about this Napoleon that he's playing, which is definitely, it's an unusual point of view. And I love the sort of kinky, chemistry that he has with Vanessa Kirby, who, you know, in interviews kind of promoting the film a few months ago, said that she told Joaquin he could slap her, do whatever he spit in her face, do whatever he wanted to her. And it's sort of evident that the two of them really liked kind of going at it and reveling in the muck and the bodiness of it all. I didn't pick it up that quite that way. I picked it up that he was an uh, inept lover who uh, who only knew how to come in from behind in a sort of animalistic way. Well, there, there, and, yeah, no, I mean, there, there is that too of it, of course, but I felt that there's, yeah, there was something, uh, there was something that the two, I don't know, like, that, that they understood each other in a way that uh, as terrible as a lover as he was, I think there was, I felt like there was something between them. Oh, sure. And and I think the two, these are two great actors who really took a lot. So, so here's my feeling. We don't get movies like this very often. A lot of money was spent. It's it's a it's a it's a director. I think in top form. Um, you know, it, it is is does he have the best battle before the not the not best battle? Maybe, yeah. But there were some moments there during the Waterloo battle where I'm looking out over the. I'm watching it on an IMAX screen, which I highly recommend. You're looking out over vistas with incredible numbers of soldiers all the way back on the horizon, all the way to the right, all the way, you know, it's like an enormous uh, panoply of action. It's just stunning. I don't know, I get a kick out of it. And where do you feel like it lands in the Oscar race? Okay, so we know that Ridley has never won the the directing Oscar. And And has only really been nominated for director I think three times and it's not been since Gladiator. Yeah, It's been a while. It's been a long time. Gladiator may be it. Um, I need to look that up. But he is uh, long overdue, uh, perhaps. That's a question. Do they, I think, I think the Academy, I, I, I suspect that this is generational, a little bit like Ferrari, where you have a, a master director working with, I would say that, Ridley has some new skills with technology, but that the basic language he's using is old language. That's right, old fashioned. And I think Ferrari is like that. And I think that the Academy knows that language and loves it and feels comfortable with it and will respect it. That's what I think. So it could could sneak into best picture. It could sneak into uh, director's hard. Director's really tough. That one's this year, especially. And if acting, you get Celine, Celine Song has to get in there, but she may not. Alexander Payne may not even get in there. And people love the holdovers. So yes. you've got Nolan and Yorgos and Greta dominating Scorsese. Um, now, another movie that we saw this week, uh, it was The Iron Claw. <laughs> uh, we both finally saw that. The Sean Durkin film about the Von Eric wrestling dynasty that is extremely ill-fated or really was extremely ill-fated there's really only one of them left standing who is well other than his brood which is kevin von eric who's played in the movie by zach efron who's a very plays it in a sort of very this roided up sinewy 
very muscularly transformed performance. Uh, you saw this with a group of SAG, I believe in a SAG audience. And I saw um, I saw the, the first screening that was in New York City with, with a lot of press and all the, the cast and the filmmaker were there. So first I'll start, what did you think about this movie, Anne? It was solid, you know, good, solid movie, a, a great story. I mean, what a great story. I didn't know anything about it. It's um, the the pater familias is uh, the I love this guy, uh, Holt McElhaney. Yes. From yeah. uh, Mindhunter. So he's great in this. He's 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 the one running the show and they all have to meet his demands. And so there's a lot of uh, of. Uh, unfortunate results from from this pressure that is placed on on all of these these guys and and uh, the guy that we love from the bear Jeremy Allen White is very good he has a good role he has a lot to deal with <laughs> and the uh, and he looks great he looks buffed up and then the other one is Harris Dickinson who who isn't as big as the others but he holds his own he holds his own he's very good the guy the guy from uh, my favorite and last year and- yes. And beach rats. Triangle of sadness. So what's going to happen to this movie? As I said, this is a very competitive year. And I I could see, I I just don't see as good as Zac Efron is, and he carries the movie with help from the others. I don't see him landing in the best actor race. No. And and this is a Christmas release from A24. So I think it has commercial potential. Um, I do too. Male men and their boys going out to see it or whatever. Um, a couple of things I'll say about this movie, you know, Zach Efron was saying at the Q&A that Sean Durkin did not encourage any of the actors to do any kind of transformation. That was all their own doing. And so it's interesting to wonder, like, psychologically, how far Zach Efron really took it, took it, because you look at pictures of this guy, Kevin Von Erich, he's not as swole as Zach oh, Efron himself to be. Like, he really takes it quite far. And Jeremy Allen White also admitted to like trying his best to get as big as possible, but that it's harder for a little guy like him. The other thing that's peculiar about this movie is that, you know, it's got, there's four brothers and there's one who died when he was very young. This happens off camera. This is not part of the movie, but there are references to it. And then there's a more explicit reference to that first kid who died at the end. But there was another brother, the youngest one that the movie writes out entirely and that is not included. And he also killed himself um, I think in 1991, he shot himself, uh, not the only one in the family to do this. Do you think, Ryan, that the filmmaker figured, I would, it would be a good thing to ask him, figured out, are you talking to him? Yes, yeah, yeah. eventually, yeah. He, he, he may have figured out that even though truth is stranger than fiction, it might be too much. That's because what I was already thinking too, you know, too because much. it's like, you think about the virgin suicides, there's like eight girls in that, you know what I mean? It, be, it does become this... Uh, which this movie reminded me of a lot. It does sort of become this countdown of awful inevitability of like, you know, I'm not spoiling anything here because this really happened, but it's like they all like fall to very tragic circumstances. And I think it would have been a lot for yet another suicide. Another suicide would have been, would have been too much. But um, the other thing that was weird about the movie, I don't know if you noticed this was that um, Jeremy Allen White, who I was looking forward to seeing doesn't show up for a while. He's gone. And it, it isn't really explained. It turns out he was in college. He just wasn't home. But I thought that was an odd, an odd way to to you know get get going on the movie and leave out another brother. 
I, I wonder I, if he was having trouble figuring out how to handle all of this. I know things. he kind of slips into the movie. Yeah, he comes back from college. Unawares <laughs> about it. I know. I'll, I'll ask him about that too. Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people have been feeling really emotional. People come out of that screening really devastated and feeling really emotional. I wasn't overwhelmed at an emotional level. And I think part of it has to do with Sean Durkin is not a sentimental filmmaker in any way. If you look at Martha, Marcy May Marlene, uh, The Nest, the things he's done for television, he's not a very emotional filmmaker, but this is very emotional material. So it's interesting to see him kind of wrap his reach around it and working on a bigger well, scale. He was he hammering away a little bit at the end, I felt. I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so not, not a, not a perfect movie. Now you saw a play in New York that uh, rocked your world. Uh, Danny in the deep blue sea. Yeah. Well, rocked my world maybe is a, is putting it too heavily, but I, yeah. So I saw Danny in the deep blue sea, which is like the hottest ticket. It's an, it's off Broadway. It's in the West village. It's like the hottest ticket in New York right now. I, I got in, you know, Use my clout to get into get a ticket, of course. I of course did. I will not. I will not issue the reality of that. But uh, no, the tickets are like four hundred dollars for this thing. But it's um, a John Patrick Shanley play, and you know he's the writer of Doubt, and he also directed the movie and wrote the screenplay for that um, Oscar-nominated film that kind of like launched Viola Davis's career. Um, you know, as a major screen actress. Um, and it stars um, Aubrey Plaza in her stage debut. This is her first is time in a play. She's no, she's good. She's really strong. I mean, the, the, it doesn't work without the two. So she's opposite Christopher Abbott, who is kind of a bit of a theater veteran and indie, but he's kind of got mostly indie cred. We, we love him very much. He's very gorgeous and he has worked out a lot and he's often in a tank top in this play and he's playing a kind of Stanley Kowalski kind of a guy, but it's set in the Bronx in the nineties and it's the two of them. They are both these really misanthropic, broken people. They're getting out of marriages. They're both probably drink too much. Uh, they hate everybody. They hate everything, but they forge, they find a connection with each other. And uh, no, the actors, they actually, they have a bit of a kind of a lusty, albeit clothed sex scene in the play. Um, that is certainly a draw. It's one of those plays where, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a few different versions of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Like, it's interesting to see how actors play it uh, and interpret the text where there could be a lot of screaming or they're not screaming these certain lines. And this is one where I would be interested in seeing a version where they're not yelling at each other so much, which they are mm. throughout the play. Mm. So it's very caustic in this way. But it's like only 90 minutes and it's sort of a short, sharp shock of a play that um uh, yeah that I, I enjoyed very much so the marvel universe has been going through a lot of cataclysmic changes uh basically it's fallen apart <laughs> and the latest one didn't do any business i mean it did very little business the lowest of the low uh in recent memory uh, ever from the marvel universe so so we have a, a situation where kevin feige is you got there was a group of us not you or me but other people at IndieWire who weighed in on all the different ways that the Marvel universe has to change itself and I agree with a lot of those suggestions you know that they should go back to original characters that they should stop linking you know to this MCU you know world but what is this move, movie that, that the trailer just came out it's called Madam Web yeah so Madam Web it's directed by S.J. Clarkson it's a Sony produced Marvel movie so it's not part of the 
MCU. They usually which, just do Spider-Man and Venom, right? That's right. And so it's like a Spider-Man spinoff. Look, and you know, I don't, I have no idea what I have done. Well, Madam Web sounds any like of this. Yeah, but it's um, you know, it's Dakota Johnson and it's Sydney Sweeney who's really rising up. Uh you know, it's a little depressing to me that after Sydney Sweeney's really impressive work in Euphoria, she's kind of already signed herself off to a world of Marvel stories. Uh, you know, so that's always unfortunate when it happens. But the trailer for this, yeah, just dropped and it looks horrible. And of course, <laughs> everybody on Twitter is labeling it a camp. Like it's already looks to be a camp classic, which I think is elevating these things a little too much. You are reminding me that you're, you did an interview with Todd Haynes. And oh, yeah. for May, December. And one of the things he said was that he was surprised at Cannes that people were reacting to the movie as though it was camp. I did not when I saw it at all. And he didn't intend it. No, he didn't. And they were sort of puzzled by this reaction when they showed up at Cannes. And I've now seen the movie a couple of times and I don't really see it either. And I think, you know, camp is a way of inflecting the present through history and through references and i don't i don't in a way that's humor irreverent and tone and and self-consciously artificial right and i don't see that about may december at all not even just by virtue of the subject matter but even in the form and the telling i think other than the fact that it's like julianne moore has a lisp and she's got some of these sort of bitchy retorts that she does you know camp is really a term that i think has become like gay slang and it's sort of eroded of its meaning and it's just a label that's slapped onto things and doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, and then we have the whole question of what happened at Warner Brothers where uh, good old David Zaslav uh, thought he could get rid of Coyote versus Acme, a completed animated film, $70 million film, and uh, you know take a write-off on it yet again. Uh, he's he did it with um, Batgirl, and and this is really unforgivable. This is people who worked, who got paid, who created something, and you know the least you can do is put it on the on the platform, put it on on Max. The least you can do is give it a, a, an airing. The, people used to dump movies, right? They would throw them out into theaters and not. What spend happened to a good old fashioned them. dumping? Right? Yeah, he could have dumped it. <laughs> but today, today it costs so much that you you can't. You know, it does. Dump, dumping doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, but you anyway, so in the end, they decided to give other people a chance to buy it, which we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But someone like Chris Lord, you know, tweeted that it's a great movie and it deserves to be seen and so forth. Yeah, it's not sending a good message to artists because Zaslav also did this with a Scooby-Doo movie. Um, not that like right around the circa when the whole Batgirl situation happened. Um, and, you know, uh, the other filmmakers... Uh, I know before before Warner Brothers Discovery sort of lifted the embargo for this movie to shop around, um, other filmmakers I heard were already trying asking their reps to cancel meetings that they were going to have with Warner Brothers because people don't. If feel I were secure. a creative person, I would think sec. I would have second thoughts. I mean, why would I yeah. take my project to to someone who's willing to do this? It's not. He yeah. doesn't support artists. He's that's terrible. No. No. And another thing is like a producer on this movie is James Gunn, head of co-head of 
WBD owned DC studios. I mean, doesn't he have some clout as an artist or as a supporter of artists? Of course, he's not going to say anything negative against Zaslav, but not right know, it's now. very curious. No, no he's not going to no, do that. No. So I think that sums up pretty much where we are today. We go off into the sunset dissing David Zaslav, and it won't be for the last time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Looking forward to talking next week. Bye-bye, Ryan. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.